This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Hello and good evening. Welcome to Navarra Live. My name is Aaron Bastani. And this evening I have the immense pleasure of being joined by Rivka Brown. Rivka, how are you? I'm great. I always love uh, co-hosting with you, Aaron. How are you doing? I'm very well. I'm very happy to be joined by, I think, one of the most exciting young journalists, not just in Navarra (laughs) Media, but in the UK. I think you always write really great stuff for us. So uh, for the very small subsection of our audience who's not familiar with you, I I hope they get to know you over the rest of the next two hours. More of that in a moment. On tonight's show, we will be discussing Labour's plans to blitz independent schools, another Michael Walker masterclass, and another Avanti Trains disaster class. Stay tuned for all of that. Uh, Before then, though, we'll be discussing Sola Braverman wanting to rip up international rules on refugees. First story. Home Secretary Suella Braverman has given a speech in the US, and she's given it at the AEI, that's the American Enterprise Institute, to you and me, a right-wing think tank based in Washington. Now, the AEI supports small government and free markets. Elsewhere, it disputes the reality of climate change. So what was Braverman doing there? This is how she explained it. Now, I'm here in America to talk about a critical and shared global challenge, uncontrolled and illegal migration. It's an existential challenge for the political and cultural institutions of the West. Just as it's a basic rule of history that nations which cannot defend their borders will not long survive, it is a basic rule of politics that political systems which cannot control their borders, will not maintain the consent of the people and thus not long endure. You do not have to be a clairvoyant to see how might this all unfold. The whole point about nations being able to defend their borders, is that really a rule of history? I mean, nations have only really existed for the last, nation states certainly, for the last 350, 400 years. Often people talk about the Roman Empire. Suella, that was an empire, a little bit different. Anyway, in her speech, Breverman made four arguments against migration. The first involved a favourite topic of the right, national identity and the threat that migration poses to it. National identity is not something invented in an ivory tower or by advertising executives. The nation state has endured because it means something real to almost all of us. And that is true the world over. Given how much it matters, it must be protected. Saying so does not make one anti-immigrant, nor does it mean you're anti-immigration. I am the child of immigrants. And it's no betrayal of my parents' story to say that immigration must be controlled. There is an optimal level of immigration. It is not zero. But there have been... There has been more migration to the UK and Europe in the last 25 years than in all the time that went before. It has been too much, too quick, with too little thought given to integration and the impact on social cohesion. And the fact that the optimal level is hard to define and will vary across time and for different countries doesn't change that fundamental fact. Nor should it blind us from this simple truth. If cultural change is too rapid and too big, then what was already there is diluted. Eventually, it will disappear. A second argument against migration was cost. According to Bravman, the British asylum system is too expensive and overloaded. That's true. But of course, the Tories have been in charge of it for more than a decade. But a third argument was about national security. According to Braverman, immigrants might also be criminals, spies and possibly soldiers waging war on the West. Illegal migration also poses obvious threats to public safety and national security. UK police chiefs have warned me of heightened levels of criminality connected to some small boat arrivals, particularly in relation to drug crime, exploitation and prostitution. People who choose to come across the channel illegally from another safe country have already showed contempt for our laws. President Macron claimed that illegal migrants or those waiting for a residence permit accounted for more than half of crime in Paris. 
Illegal migration is increasingly a tool exploited by hostile states and those acting on their behalf. Vladimir Putin weaponized migration in 2021, sending thousands of asylum seekers via Belarus to try to cross into Poland and Lithuania. In March, Italy's defense minister said, the exponential increase in the migratory phenomenon departing from African shores is also, to a not insignificant extent, part of a clear strategy of hybrid warfare that the Wagner division is implementing, using its considerable weight in some African countries. This is an extraordinary kind of rhetoric being used to describe people fleeing war, persecution, even those just trying to make a better life for themselves, economic migrants, you might not say they're refugees. The idea, the idea that these people are weapons, the idea that these are being instrumentalized by hostile states, you know, I, I don't think Afghans were saying to the Russians, we don't want to go to Europe. And Putin was saying, nope, you got to go. You got to go via Belarus. They wanted to come to Europe regardless. This is a huge trend we will see growing over the course of this century. This weird talking point adopted by much of the political class, absolutely no sense to it whatsoever. Uh, Braverman's fourth argument was about democracy and that people in the West don't want immigration, and unless it's controlled, it could lead to, quote, a more dangerous politics. Now, I find this particularly interesting, given the Tories have overseen a massive legal migration increase, which Braverman has been in charge of. We had a net immigration into this country last year of 600,000. Almost all that's legal. And I think this emphasis on illegal migration is to distract from that, because, of course, their core vote isn't happy about what's happening perfectly legally. But the real target of Bravin's speech was what she called, quote, the global asylum framework. When the Refugee Convention was signed, it conferred protection on some 2 million people in Europe. According to analysis by Nick Timothy and Carl Williams for the Centre for Policy Studies, it now confers the notional right to move to another country upon at least 780 million people. It is therefore incumbent upon politicians and thought leaders to ask whether the Refugee Convention and the way it has come to be interpreted through our courts is fit for our modern age or in need of reform. Article 1 of the Convention defines the term refugee as applying to those who, owing to a well-founded fear of being persecuted, for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion, cannot safely reside in the country of their nationality. Elsewhere, the convention speaks of life or freedom being threatened. I think most members of the public would recognize those fleeing a real risk of death, torture, oppression or violence as being in need of protection. However, as case law has developed, what we have seen in practice is an interpretive shift away from persecution in favor of something more akin to a definition of discrimination. And there has been a similar shift away from a well-founded fear towards a credible or plausible fear. The practical consequence of which has been to expand the number of those who may qualify for asylum and to lower the threshold for doing so. Let me be clear, there are vast swathes of the world where it is extremely difficult to be gay or to be a woman. Where individuals are being persecuted, it is right that we offer sanctuary. But we will not be able to sustain an asylum system if in effect simply being gay or a woman, or fearful of discrimination in your country of origin, is sufficient to qualify for protection. That was part of a call to negotiate the UN Convention on Refugees. Besides making it harder for women and gay people to claim asylum, Bravman also wanted to force people to claim asylum in the first safe country they enter. That's something that generally happens anyway. Bravman's focus on LGBT asylum seekers might make you think there are lots of them, but you'd be wrong. In 2022, sexual orientation formed part of the basis of an asylum claim for just 1,330 people in the UK. That's around 1.6% of all asylum claims, so hardly a huge number. 
The largest number of applications came from Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Nigeria. All of these countries have criminal codes outlawing homosexuality, with breaches potentially carrying life sentences. In Sharia areas of Nigeria, breaches carry the death penalty. Now, those laws make life pretty unbearable for gay people. But even when someone escapes the eye of the law, they still have to live in communities where the threat of extrajudicial violence is very real. So the question is, do people actually have to be prosecuted under these laws or experience violence to count as suffering persecution? Is being too afraid to find a romantic partner just discrimination? That seems to be what Bravman is saying here. The living in fear for your freedom or even for your life isn't enough to make you someone worthy of asylum. Rivka, this was a really big intervention we saw from uh, Bravman. I want to talk to you about, obviously, uh, all the details just there. But also, I want to ask you, what, what do you think the play is here? Is this part of Suela Bravman making a pitch to be leader of the Conservative Party after any potential defeat? Or is this her potentially pivoting? to a larger presence in the US. Of course, there's a lot more money over there with their think tanks, with their media outlets. Uh, I want to know your thoughts. Is this a, is this a political play for a, a career very much in Westminster, or is it one beyond it? Because, of course, it can't be um, neglected that this took place across the Atlantic. There is an irony here in that Suella Braverman is in the US, um, who we are supposedly only partners with because of our shared valuing of a liberal international rules-based order to rip up that very order. But as you say, she's found a welcome home in the uh, cottage industry of right-wing think tanks in the US that are, you know, extremely high-paying. We've seen uh, political migrations over to the US uh, from liberals like, uh, you know, famously uh, the leader of the uh, Lib Dems, Nick Clegg, who went and worked for Facebook, now Meta. Um, You can get some pretty good gigs out there, I guess once your once your own party goes up in flames so I don't think that's a that's a bad uh, guess Aaron um, but I also think there's something maybe even more nihilistic to it which is that you know this is a parting shot from uh, a conservative leader who knows she's lost, lost uh, the debate within her own party, lost the fight against, you know, the the um, the small boats and um, is losing potentially on the Rwanda plan, which is um, facing a challenge in the Supreme Court. And this is her one last ditch attempt to, to sort of uh, fire a shot at the very tiny number of LGB people who come to the UK each year uh, to seek asylum. You know, it's like, 2%, 1.5% of asylum claims are from LGBT people, so or LGB people in this case, because it's only sexual orientation that's covered. Um, but so yeah, I think this is uh, potentially just the, the sign of a flailing Home Secretary who knows she's on her way out. But yeah, could also be uh, a form of signaling um, to a very live and active right-wing um, sort of intellectual sphere in America. And let's take a look at some of the reactions to Braverman's speech. As you'd expect, she had the support of plenty of Tory backbenchers and talk TV pundits. Uh, but this was from Shadow Home Secretary Yvette Cooper. Sola Braverman has so lost grip of Tory asylum chaos, she is targeting and scapegoating LGBT people. Deeply divisive, damaging political game playing, unworthy of her office. Instead of blaming people persecuted in places like Uganda for who they love, she should sort chaos at home. Well said. And from Braverman's own Tory benches, her colleague David Davis said this, It is perfectly reasonable to ask why there are so many migrants. However, we need to see the analysis. A lot of these migrants will have been displaced from countries that have faced wars initiated or contributed to by Western nations. Well said, David Davis. We don't talk about that nearly enough. One thing I'd also want to add, and this is a question for people out there, I don't understand why the Tories have this obsession with changing international refugee law and rights. When it seems to me there's a much easier solution for them, which is the Supreme Court. She talked there about case law that's growing, which really is at odds with the conservative agenda on immigration. Get rid of the Supreme Court. We didn't always have it. The Lords used to be the highest cause for appeal. The Supreme Court was introduced by Blair. I'm not, I'm not saying I support that, but if you have a problem with judges deciding immigration policy rather than elected politicians, which they repeatedly say, okay, go back to the status quo ante before the early 2000s. And I think that's not said because A, that would be very hard, B, because they don't want to solve the issue. 
They love immigration being a high salience issue because it's something they think that benefits them electorally. Now, the right-wing media will lap up Soella Braverman's speech, so it's important that there's at least some pushback and someone can make the case for a humane immigration system. Enter Navarra Media's own Michael Walker on GB News earlier today, giving his reaction to the speech. Well, I think it's political grandstanding. And I suppose the reason I say that is because I don't think it actually solves any of the challenges that Europe currently faces. So talking about LGBT people and it has to be persecution as opposed to discrimination. Now, 2% of asylum applications last year involved a claim about being LGBT. And I don't think many people are saying, oh, I, I feel uncomfortable at work, right? This is people who are com- coming from countries such as Afghanistan. There are many countries in sub-Saharan Africa where it's illegal to be gay, where you have the death penalty for being gay. So the idea that we're letting in Lots of people for merely being discriminated for not getting the promotion they want is, is just a joke, frankly. That is not going to resolve anything. That's not going to change who counts as a refugee because those people aren't being counted as a refugee anyway. The other big issue she is, or, or the big claim she is trying to make, what she thinks will be this revolutionary change, is saying that if people come through a safe country, they aren't genuine refugees. Now, at the moment, the Refugee Convention does allow you to send back people to a safe country. So Britain if we wanted to, according to the Refugee Convention, could say, well, if you come from France, um, we think you've come from a safe place, so we'll send you back to France. Mm. What the Refugee Convention doesn't allow you to do is send someone back to a country which is deemed unsafe. And what's stopping us sending people back to France isn't the Refugee Convention, it's that we don't have a deal with France. Now, there is a sort of logical problem with this idea that people should always um, claim asylum in the first safe country they arrive in, which is, what about those safe countries? Mm. Right? Why? Greece, who are already accepting way more refugees than we are? Why would Italy, that's already receiving way more refugees than we are, suddenly say, okay, fine, if they get to the UK, we'll also take them back here? Why should we have much, such a smaller burden than those countries which are on the border of Europe? I don't see why anyone else would accept that. Michael Walker talking sense there to Patrick Christie's very clear point, I think indisputable. So let's go back to what he said next. I suspect that what we will end up with, I mean, what we arguably should end up with at some point in the future, is a change in the definition of what a refugee or asylum seeker is to meet with modern standards, which means that it is less easy for basically anyone to claim that they're a refugee or an asylum seeker. So you reduce the number of people who would have a valid claim, and then the world as a whole has some kind of international quota system for those people so that the burden is more manageable. Would you go along with that? Well, I mean, I think a global quota system would be sensible. I mean, we're a very long way away from that. So at the Mm. moment, this seems like, well, I suppose one way of putting it is I would be in favour of a global quota system, but Britain at the moment is taking less than its fair share. So we're throwing our toys out of the pram because we've got 80,000 people arriving. Germany has 300,000 people arriving. France has 200,000 people arriving. Why is it us as a country? Is is geography not a part? Yeah, I I suppose, look, I mean, is geography not a massive part of that, Michael? You know, I mean, if you look at the size of Germany or the size of France compared to us, I mean, that would be my argument against that. No, I I think this argument about geography is is somewhat silly. I mean, there's lots of space in Britain. We aren't one of the most densely populated places in the world. Um, But not a lot of that space has housing on it, does it? I don't think it's geographical. Sorry, what did you say? Not a lot of that space has actual housing on it. We might have green fields, but we'd have to then build more places just specifically for refugees and asylum seekers, which I think Swala Brahman will probably be against. I think there is a problem here whereby, for some reason, in Britain, we can't build high-speed rail, we can't build houses, and therefore we say, oh, we can't possibly take any refugees. Now, why would France and Germany say, oh, we'll send your refugees back here because we accept you can't build houses, right? It, Mm. It doesn't make any sense. Now, what we get to the heart of here, really, is that the present situation is massively to the advantage of wealthy countries. 76% of all refugees globally are in low and middle income countries, 76%. Number one, the number one country with the most refugees in it, Turkey, approximately 3.6 million people, mostly Syrian. Number two, Iran, 3.4 million, mostly from Afghanistan. Number three, uh, Colombia, most of those people are Venezuelan. So the idea that the West, Europe, Britain is taking a massive share of the burden is nonsensical. And, and clearly a, a global quota where the number of refugees was apportioned equally across the entire planetary community of nations would mean a massive increase in migration to Europe, including Britain. And even though Europe comparatively has far fewer people coming as refugees, even within that context, Britain still doesn't pull its weight. So we're the laggards of the laggards if you're looking at this as a, a potentially fair way of distributing things on a global scale. And let's go back to what was said next. 
I'd also like to push back against this idea that anyone can claim to be a refugee. That's not the case. It's incredibly difficult. And if you look at the nationalities where people are being accepted as refugees when they come to the UK, it's places such as Afghanistan that we occupied for 20 years, people who helped the British army and then were abandoned. It's places such as Iran, where we currently have crippling sanctions on them. So we've crippled the economy and now we complain when people come here from there. Michael, music to my ears. I've said this so often. It is absolutely crazy that we have a policy of sanctions on countries like Venezuela, Iran, Afghanistan. You might agree or disagree with those sanctions. I personally disagree with them. And then you say, oh, people are leaving. What a surprise. What did you expect to happen? Now, that's not to say people are leaving those countries purely because of the sanctions. Of course, many are fleeing persecution or the regime. I'm under no illusions about people leaving Afghanistan or Iran and why they're leaving. However, any expert on this, when you talk to them, says, well, obviously, the economic conditions of the country overlap with other issues too. There is never a single reason, or rarely, a single reason why somebody flees a country. It's often a, a, a range of factors. There's a war. They've also lost their family. They're also suffering from economic hardship. They leave. Uh, they're part of an ethnic minority. They can't access work. They can't live the life they want to lead. They are molested by the police. They leave. So this idea that there's just one reason why somebody leaves, and if you know, um, if there was sanctions or if there wasn't sanctions, it doesn't make any difference, is nonsensical. And two of the countries responsible for people coming over via small boats at the moment, that the two countries, the two leading countries are Afghanistan and Iran, we have sanctions on those countries. So it's absolutely absurd to say, we have a policy of strangling your economy, but please don't leave. And let's go see what Michael said next. It's already happening, the massive backlash. And once she talks, the big backlash is going to be accusations of Suella Braverman being homophobic and misogynistic because she's saying that, you know, just simply by virtue of being gay or a woman, you're not going to be able to claim asylum. Uh, You have to, I think she's going to have to say something like, you're going to have to show serious evidence of persecution. Do you think that that is a homophobic thing to say? Well, it's not a homophobic policy, but it's not a policy that is already, you know, it's not different to what we already do. Of course... Being gay or being a woman isn't enough to get asylum. You have to demonstrate persecution, but you currently already have to demonstrate persecution. Mm. So if there were to be a claim about homophobia, I'd say, why is she making a big deal about this completely irrelevant policy? She, she seems to be trying to say that people just saying they're gay and they're getting asylum is a big problem. When it's not, that, that, mm. that's not the reality. So you do have to ask a question. Why is a politician making a big scare story out of something that isn't happening? And potentially that might be okay. to whip up homophobia. Rivka, what do you think? It does sound like Sola Braverman is actively misrepresenting existing policy in order to bolster her own argument. I mean, totally. It's it's an exaggerated form of, of what Rishi Sunak did recently with his kind of dying pledges where he said, we're not going to make you sort your rubbish into seven bins. It's like nobody is saying that people who face discrimination in the workplace, who aren't being given a promotion, like Michael says, because they're gay or because they're a woman, can come to the UK to seek asylum. It's already incredibly degrading and dehumanizing to go through the process, even proving you're gay to the Home Office. There was the case of a person not long ago who was refused asylum by the Home Office because they didn't have a boyfriend. And others have had to prove sexually intimate, uh, you know, exchanges with their partners in order to be granted asylum. It's already so degrading and dehumanizing. But I think one other thing that it's important to say is that, you know, Suella Braverman is relying on the idea that gay people and uh, um, and women are treated actually quite well, at least in the UK. And so we should assume that they're treated quite well elsewhere, which, as we know, is not the case. It can be, uh, you know, it can get you the death penalty in many places. But also we know that people in the UK, that gay people in the UK are seeing their rights be undone decades of progress be undone because of people like Suella Braverman. Just a few weeks ago, two people were stabbed in Clapham in a homophobic attack. You know, and this is the extension of years of the Tories degrading the rights, not just of gay people, but of trans people. You know, what begins as stupid quibbling about gender neutral toilets ends up in two people getting stabbed. 
victim ends up in people being sent away at the border because they're gay. You know, this is the logical, and because they're a woman, more like equally importantly, which is a really important thing to point out as well, because the 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 rift that the Tories have attempted to create between women's rights and LGBT rights have here been shown to be completely, you know, um, strategic because now they're throwing women right under the bus with LGBT people as well. And we have absolutely no defenses against it because the LGBT movement has been successfully divided and conquered by years of Tory transphobia. I knew somebody and maybe uh, the, the OG uh, listeners and viewers here at Navarra Media might remember her, Adaron Kiapata. She was interviewed by Navarra about eight years ago, Nigerian asylum seeker. She was a, a gay woman. Uh, she eventually had a successful asylum application. She was at Yarl's Wood. The Home Office said to her, we want documentary evidence of, of you with a lover. She, what, what do you mean? They said, do you have any videos, any photos? And she, what videos? What do you, what, erotic videos? You know, and that would have helped her claim. Just extraordinary, really. Next story. Avanti West Coast made headlines last year for its shocking train services. Last August, it cancelled 25% of all trains. And in the three months up to last October... 1,400 services running between London, Manchester, Liverpool and Glasgow were ditched, with the operator basically bidding its timetable. The situation was so shocking it led Greater Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham to call for the operator's franchise to be stripped, issuing this ultimatum. My message to Avanti is you're in the last chance saloon. You either bring a plan forward to fix this or you, or you get out. My message to the government is start holding them to account, start working with us to fix this. This is too important to the UK economy uh, to leave it in this mess. So what did the Tories do? Catastrophic failure, uselessness at every corner. Well, of course, they gave it a brand new contract just last week, one that runs for nine years, not long then. And Avanti has wasted no time letting passengers down again, almost like a reward for them getting that contract, with hundreds of passengers being forced to get taxis from Preston to Edinburgh after the operator cancelled a train while they were already on board. Just for context, people who aren't familiar with the geography, it's 186 miles from Preston to Edinburgh. That's about a three and a half hour drive on a good day. One intrepid and presumably exhausted Avanti passenger took Twitter with him on the crazy ride. Comedian James Nakise began by posting this. Around 7.26pm, I received an email that my train had been cancelled. This was a surprise because I was still on a moving train. B, there had been no announcement on the moving train. About 10 minutes later, the train manager came on the speaker to say, quote, they heard from passengers that the train had been cancelled and was going to investigate because everything looked fine to them. Crowdsourcing the news that your train has been axed, a definite sign of a functioning train operator. That's definitely happened to me, by the way. I don't know about you. Around 8pm, the train stopped in Preston, where passengers were told to get off and wait for the next train at 9.42. Except, plot twist, just before 9pm, that train was cancelled as well. And Akise went on to report this. Around 9.20, news came down. Alternative transport has been arranged. Bus? An extra train? Horses? No! Taxis! For hundreds of people to a city three and a half hours away. Take a moment to appreciate how long the trip to Edinburgh from Preston is, how long the return journey would be. Think about how big the fare would need to be and then try and estimate how many various cabs were needed to shift a couple of hundred people off home. Taxis! For hundreds of people to a city three and a half hours away. Of course, it was more complicated than that. Not everyone was going to Edinburgh, the final stop for the train. There were also people trying to get to Dundee, Carlisle and Glasgow too. A logistical nightmare. Nakise's Twitter thread goes on to some of the twists and turns of his 180-mile middle-of-the-night cab ride. Needless to say, hiring Preston Black Cabs to go all the way to Edinburgh in a vehicle not made for long journeys may not have been Avanti's brightest idea. And it looks like they weren't interested in taking care of the drivers either with Nikise posting this at the end of his journey. For those concerned, the cabbie is driving back to Preston tonight, says he's fine, and hey, maybe he is. But it's pretty twisted that he doesn't get taken care of by either his company or the train company hiring him. Made sure he knew the quick way out of town via a servo. 
Nikise arrived at his destination five hours late, with his journey from London to Edinburgh taking 11 hours. But he was a man traveling alone. Posting under the handle Modern Studies, a teacher from a school outside Glasgow described what for me is a nightmare scenario. Hi, at Avanti West Coast. We've been stuck at Preston since around 6.30pm with 50 12-year-olds. Oh my God. It's now 10.08pm. We've just been informed that there is no way of getting us home to Glasgow as we can't send kids alone on taxis. A staff member has said we are effectively stuck here. The teachers in that group were forced to source their own coach at 10 p.m. on a Monday night to take the kids home. Rivka, that is an ordeal and a half, but I hope that teacher or those teachers get an all-expenses-paid holiday from Avanti. I mean, we can only hope, but it's <laughs> it's far more likely that the CEO of Avanti is going to get a bigger bonus than they've ever got in the past thanks to this massive nine-year contract. And it's this perverse situation. You know, I was always told that capitalism creates competition and uh, increases standards and makes, um, you know, efficiencies because companies are forced to battle it out with each other to be the fastest, the cheapest, you know, um, and give the best service. And yet, this is entirely the opposite of what happens in the UK, where it feels like we face a continual race to the bottom, where companies like Abellio, like Avanti, like First Group are, are, are sort of competing with each other to be the shittest train provider in the UK. It, it, it feels like almost a staple um, of, British, of British life at this point. I can't imagine, I can't actually remember a time before it. But I think this is almost, for me, it's almost a metaphor for how British people have come to accept that things simply cannot get any better. Um, and you mentioned some of the reporting that I do, Aaron. I did do a bit of a frivolous piece recently for NavarraMedia.com, which some of you might have read, about Finnish trains. I was in Finland this summer, and my God, it's a utopia. The Finnish-owned train company, VR, provides like the most incredible service from lockers to a, a child's carriage featuring a whole playground, an entire pub on board. And, and the tickets are literally like, we're talking 40 quid for like a, a, a trip across the entire country for a ticket bought on the same day, you know, like it's mad. And, and these are companies, not specifically VR, but European train companies that we in Britain are subsidizing with our 170 quid tickets from London to Preston because 70% of train operating companies in this country are owned by foreign state companies. Deutsche Bahn, you know, uh, French train companies, Dutch train companies, they're all cashing in on our gullibility and our government's refusal to consider uh, nationalization. And I mean, you know, I, I hope that a Labour government would reconsider. Although, you know, just today, I was reminded of the fact that one of Starmer's kind of close uh, comrades and advisors, the chair of the Jewish Labour movement, Mike Katz, is the PR guy is the spin doctor for First Group, which owns Avanti. So it's hard to say whether Labour would have done any different. Yeah, you don't need to go to Finland to see much better trains than what we hear, have here in the UK. I mean, people love to say, German trains, they're so good. Well, of course German trains are good, it's Germany. There's a great line, by the way, about the East German Republic. The Germans are so efficient, they almost got communism right. You know, I don't, I don't quite agree with that, obviously, given my politics. But it, it, uh, it, it really underscores the fact that there's a cliche around engineering excellence in Germany. You don't have to go that far. Okay, Poland, which for the entirety of my life has been a middle-income country, its trains are immeasurably better than ours, Im immeasurably better than Britain's trains. You know, cheaper, uh, often more comfortable. And you have food wagons, wagon borovi. You know, I was on a, a train, I think, between, um, between Poznan and Warsaw, I think it was, and I had pierogi. They had a kitchen, they're making the pierogi. I was having a pint of lager. It was incredible. And in Britain, in the South particularly, you get Southwest trains, there aren't even little carts going up with coffees and Kit Kats anymore. And this is in the most affluent part of the UK. And I do think there's an important point you're making here, Rivka, which I think will politicize more and more people over the years ahead. Uh, and I say young people, but I mean really anybody under 55, 60. I think people will go to other countries, Germany, Poland, Finland, but also places outside Europe, not even always rich countries, by the way, and they'll realize the state of what is going on in this country. Uh, again, going back to Poland, a middle-income country, you go to Poznan, you go to Krakow, you go to Roslav, you go to Katowice, 
the high streets, the businesses, the local economy, and all these places is immeasurably more healthy looking than smaller cities in Britain. London's booming. Apart from that, and maybe Manchester, all of these places look more prosperous, more rich. Incredible. If you'd said that 20 years ago, nobody would have believed you, but that's where we are. Next story, and it's about schools, uh, but certainly not those in the public sector. Labour plans to impose a VAT on private schools in its first year in power if it wins the next general election. It would do this through immediately stripping independent schools of their charitable status, meaning they would lose both their VAT exemption and business rates relief. Labour claims the change would raise £1.7 billion, with, quote, every penny generated being poured back into state education. Sounds good to me. When asked if the plans would be implemented immediately, a senior Labour source said, quote, we will, we will not be phasing them in. Given current polling gives Labour a large majority at the next general election, the relevant legislation should easily pass through both the House of Commons and the House of Lords if Starmer becomes PM. And with the general election expected to take place by January 2025 at the latest, we could have a snap election, of course, private schools could be facing massive changes within 18 months. Now, this story was reported by iNews, and they spoke to a number of representatives in private education. Chief Executive of the Independent Schools Council, Judy Robinson, said this. We would urge Labour to take note of the real concerns that many across education have raised, particularly the effect their policy would have on children in smaller schools and faith schools, children on bursaries, and pupils with special educational needs. Schools are having discussions and preparing as best they are able without time or policy detail. Any well, the detail is that it's happening. Any policy decision affecting this many children should be subject to full and thorough impact assessments impact assessment. That is a, a great phrase, isn't it? I don't oppose them, but it's a, it's a really great way of stopping things from happening. When the Tories increased VAT in 2010, was there an impact assessment for small businesses? Or is this just special pleading? I think it sounds like it. Elsewhere, the head teacher at Ewell Castle School said that Labour's VAT plans coming in as soon as September 2024 would be his worst possible case scenario. He also said this, we would be in place to try and respond to it, but it would be incredibly tough, he said. The irony is that the really big, wealthy, independent schools is not going to hurt them because they're absolutely bulletproof when it comes to this financially. It's the smaller and medium-sized private schools that would be impacted from this. The bigger ones are totally inoculated. Edmonds should uh, perhaps consider moonlighting as a Labour press officer, given he's basically saying that larger schools can easily afford this bulletproof, in his own words. Elsewhere, Lizzie Nesbitt, the head teacher of Emmanuel Christian School in Oxford, told the I earlier this year that her small independent primary school would be pushed to the brink under Labour's plans. She said this, we only have about 70 pupils at the moment. We're a tiny school that's already at capacity, so we can't just do things like increase class sizes to save costs. Independent education is not a monolith. It's a fair point. A report by the Institute for Fiscal Studies, IFS, published in July, predicted that up to 40,000 privately educated students could be forced to switch to the state sector if Labour implements the policy. Of course, prices would go up to reflect changes to VAT and some parents wouldn't be able to afford things anymore. That would mean the scheme would raise around £300 million less a year, of course, fewer private school students, so closer to £1.4 billion than £1.7 billion. The IFS said it predicted that as much as 7% of privately educated pupils would move to state schools under the plans, and that's well below the forecast of at least 17% in a study commissioned by, you guessed it, the independent school sector. Importantly for the IFS numbers, even though more kids would be in the state sector, that would still mean higher spending per pupil. Here's Labour's Annalise Dodd speaking to Sky News about the issue. Parents who scrimp and save to send their kids to private school, you're going to put the uh, fees up by 20% by charging private schools 20% VAT uh, in the first year of office? Well, we've actually seen over the last 20 years the fees that private schools charge going up pretty much year on year, often above inflation. And there's not been any drop off in the number of students and pupils attending those schools. In fact, the number of pupils at those schools has gone up over time. We so do believe. You've gone another twenty percent. 
Well, we believe that politics is about choices. We want to make sure that every child can attend an excellent school. At the moment, 90% of kids go to schools that are not private, to schools that are in the state sector. We need to be gathering the money from somewhere in order to be able to deliver that change. We've been really upfront about this. So you're going to push on this with that policy? About cho- well, this is about choices. We don't think it's right to be walking away from those children and their families. We think, yes, absolutely, because we need to see that change. And you know what Labour will never do is have an unfunded policy. We had that with Liz Truss. We saw the impact on our economy. Not talking about Liz Truss, talking about Labour this morning, if I may. Personally, I find it quite interesting that Labour are willing to expend a fair amount of political capital on this issue when the net financial benefit is actually rather small. On that note, here's Freddie Sayers, editor of the Unheard website. He says this, I don't think Labour have properly realised the political risk of this, nor the Tories, the political opportunity. 7% of the population went to private school. One million parents have a child at a private school. Many of them are thinking of voting Labour. This is an easy reason not to. I I, I would question his numbers there. I don't think everybody uh, who sent a kid to private school is thinking that. But it is an interesting point, isn't it, Rivka? Especially given Labour has shown such timidity elsewhere... Uh, that here, they're really looking, they're eager to pick a fight. You know, we said that press officer saying, we won't delay it. You know, that's a great line, by the way. I think it's fantastic. And it shows they're serious about their political agenda. But given the timidity they've shown elsewhere, it's it's a real, not surprise, but it's really out of keeping with their approach, isn't it? Maybe, but I mean, as you say, Aaron, it's pretty financially inconsequential. You quoted just earlier the head teacher of a small private school, one of the people, uh, one of the people who uh, you know whose parents are, uh, are scrimping and saving somehow to to get their kids their education, um, saying that most of the big private schools are pretty inoculated from this, and many of the parents of these private school children will be inoculated too. So I very much doubt what Freddie says is saying that this is somehow going to swing um, their vote. Uh, immensely. I, I, I really doubt that. And the people who, uh, you know, who are voting Tory, most of those people, most of those privately educated private school parents um, are never going to vote Labour in a million years. You know, there was a UCL study from earlier this year that showed that people who went to private school themselves, who I assume will be a large number of the people who are now private school parents are twice as twice as likely to be loyal Tory voters. Now, that's not just to vote Tory in one election, that's to vote Tory in three to four elections. These are people for whom voting Tory isn't simply a rational decision. It's a family tradition, just like, you know, going to the Maldives every year or wearing sapphires at your grandmother's 80th birthday. You know, these are, these are not um, swing voters by any stretch of the imagination. And I actually think that Labour has chosen this political issue precisely because it can communicate, it can kind of virtue signal their intentions um, without actually doing anything material. We know that the last Labour government, the new Labour government, um, one of its only virtues, I would say, was to enormously increase the per-pupil spending in primary and secondary schools. Now, Labour, as we've heard uh, from many ministers, including Annalise Dodds, there is going to be very fiscally conservative in government and probably won't do very much at all to make up the enormous shortfall in educational spending in this country, which, by the way, is 50 times as great as the amount that it stands to gain from uh, from this tax on private schools or stripping them of charitable status. So it can do a sort of virtue signaling, we care about private schools, but without actually doing anything um, to improve the quality of the state sector. So I think it's it's, it's exactly the kind of Labour policy um, that we can expect. On, on the contrary, I think it's like the typical Starmer policy. I also think, to his credit, it's quite a good bear trap. You know, you set this trap, the Tory government, that we're going to come and tax private schools. As soon as the Tories take the bait, it's unleash an avalanche of attacks on the private education of um, <laughs> of Tory ministers, and send Rachel Reeves into every single shoe factory in the UK. Yeah, I, I sort of disagree with one point, which is that I, I do think that some of these people will matter in some seats. You know, I think in the South, particularly, Labour wants to pick up these sort of blue wall seats or to boot the Tories out and the Lib Dems pick them up. These kinds of people may matter. Uh, it's not in the grand scheme of winning a general election, I agree, it's, it's, it's irrelevant. But I do agree wholeheartedly with your conclusion, really, because look, even if we're looking at, say, £1 billion, £1.5 billion um, additional 
revenue giving over to uh, the state school sector, of course, there'll be more kids in it. So let's just say a very marginal increase in the amount of spending per kid. That is not going to sort problems out in the state school system. But like I say, we have something quite sort of performative going on. Now, I should say, I agree with the policy. By the way, this policy was also in the Labour Manifesto in 2019, but it's not like they're imposing a tax on private schools. They're merely going to treat them like other private businesses. And I think anybody with their head on their shoulders will say, well, yeah, they're profit-generating businesses. They should be treated as such. Now, finally, some people say, well, they have bursaries, they look after people, they have a broader social use, they create public goods, positive externalities. So does house building, right? If you build a home for somebody, it has loads of use. We don't just say it makes profit for somebody. So the idea that we should treat education differently to something like house building or agriculture, which are actually, if anything, more fundamental to people's needs, uh, I, I don't think that argument washes up in the slightest. We here at Navarra Media are looking to gain 5,000 more supporters before 2024. We do what we do thanks to the incredible generosity of our supporters, uh, but we need more of you. Uh, not that many more, uh, but we need more. So if you want to help build a new media for different politics, if you want to build people-powered media to take on the billionaires and the oligarchs, you know what to do. Go to navarramedia.com forward slash support and help us get there. Like I say, navarramedia.com forward slash support. There could be an election next year. And if you want somebody out there making the political weather that isn't Murdoch or GB News or the or the Times, the Telegraph, you know what to do. Go to navarramedia.com forward slash support. A final story. Last week, the Canadian Parliament gave a standing ovation for a war hero from the Second World War. Good for them, you might think, until you realise he fought in an SS unit. 98-year-old Yaroslav Hunka was introduced to Canadian MPs on Friday and received a rapturous applause. That was tied in with Ukraine's President Zelensky addressing the chamber to thank Canada for supporting its fight against Russia. The Canadian House Speaker Anthony Rotter hailed Hunker for fighting for, quote, Ukrainian independence against the Russians. Mr. Rotter, Canada was on the same side as the Russians in the Second World War. 45,000 of your compatriots died fighting fascism. Rotter has since apologized for the affair, but joining him on the apology train is Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Obviously, it's extremely upsetting that this happened. Uh, the speaker, speaker has uh, acknowledged his mistake uh, and has apologized. Uh, but this is something that is deeply embarrassing to the Parliament of Canada and, by extension, to all Canadians. Uh, I think particularly of Jewish MPs and all members of the Jewish community across the country who are uh, celebrating Yom, or commemorating Yom Kippur today. Uh, I think it's going to be really important that all of us push back against Russian propaganda, Russian disinformation, and continue our steadfast and unequivocal support for Ukraine, uh, as uh, we did last week with announcing uh, further measures to stand with Ukraine in uh, Russia's illegal war against it. Let me just quickly repeat those comments. It's going to be really important that all of us push back against Russian propaganda, Russian disinformation, and continue our steadfast and unequivocal support for Ukraine. What does Russian propaganda have to do with the Parliament of Canada honoring a Nazi? Let me guess, Putin made you clap. It was disinformation. There is precisely zero remorse being shown there, by the way. In better news, however, it seems that Yaroslav Hunker, the 98-year-old being catapulted to fame, may now have to face justice after fleeing Europe decades ago. That's because a Polish government minister, Szemyszwaw Szanek, has launched a bid to extradite Honka. He posted this on Twitter. You can see this in both Polish and English. I'll read the English, obviously. In view of the scandalous events in the Canadian Parliament, which involved honouring in the presence of President Zelensky, a member of the criminal Nazi SS Galician formation, I have taken steps towards the possible extradition, extradition of this man to Poland. The letter attached to that tweet was sent to the head of the Institute of National Remembrance, the IPN, a Polish state body that has prosecutorial powers. It asked him to urgently establish whether Yaroslav Honka is wanted for crimes against the Polish nation or Poles of Jewish origin. Such crimes constitute grounds for applying to Canada for his extradition, it adds in the letter.
Now, something I've seen repeatedly is that those such as Hunka were fighting the Russians, defending their country. That simply isn't true. Most Ukrainians fought for the Red Army, and soldiers from the Ukrainian SS unit that Hunka belonged to were involved in the massacre of 850 ethnic Poles in the village of Huta Pienczka, which before the war was part of Poland but is now part of Ukraine. That unit also fought against Slovak and Yugoslav partisans. Precisely how killing Poles Yugoslavs and Slovaks is helping Ukraine, is anybody's guess. Uh, Hunka was among 600 members of the unit that were allowed to settle in Canada after the war and is now a Ukrainian-Canadian citizen. Importantly, uh, there is a precedent for his extradition. That's because in 2017, IPN prosecutors requested the extradition from the United States of another member of the same unit, Michael Karkoch, who had settled in Minnesota after the war. However, he died before that process was completed. Rivka, I've seen posts from various Canadian parliamentarians on, on Twitter and whatnot saying that we need to be vigilant against anti-Semitism and how this story undermines that, which is fair, that's good. But if they mean that we need to be vigilant against anti-Semitism, shouldn't this man be extradited and face justice in Poland? I'm not going to challenge you, Aaron. I think that, you know, extraditing war criminals, and this man is a war criminal, it's worth noting that, you know, he wasn't just part of a uh, a unit of Ukrainians that happened to fight on the side of Nazis in the war. He was part of the Waffen-SS. You know, these are people who staffed concentration camps, who shot people in mass graves. You know, this man has seen and done things which you cannot imagine. Yeah. And so, of course, I think that he should face justice. But you know who else I think should face justice? People like Trudeau and people like his deputy prime minister, who's the granddaughter of another member of the um, SS who was rehabilitated or uh, repatriated in Canada. Um, and, and we need to ask ourselves, I think this is the important question, why why are these people here? These people, like this 98-year-old uh, Ukrainian Waffen-SS uh, former member, are in Canada and in the UK and in Australia and in the States because we took them in after the war. We decided to take them in, in part because they were... Uh, they were useful to us as potential intelligence agents and, uh, you know, psyops during the Cold War, people who could discourage communist sympathies among diaspora communities in the aftermath of the Second World War and in the, as, the, as the Cold War was kicking into gear. So it's us, the Western powers, who need to ask ourselves uh, about our own murky dealings with these uh, Nazis and why we accommodated them in order to further the Cold War and now the kind of ongoing um, rivalry with Russia. You know, this is something that no Western power wants to confront, least of all Ukraine, which, you know, who's who many years ago, or not even many years ago, I should say, um, in the recent past, um, was was being confronted with its own right-wing and, and kind of neo-Nazi uh, history and neo-Nazi present. But now, any mention of the Azov Battalion, or now the Azov Regiment, as it's been absorbed into the Ukrainian military, is is totally, is, is met with accusations of uh, Russian propaganda. You know, we should be able to to have both of these conversations at the same time. Why um, the you know the, the the conversation about um you know Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine, as well as the conversation about Ukraine and the West, Canada included, the UK included, are continuing rehabilitation of criminals of the Holocaust and of the Second World War in order to further our proxy war with Russia, both historically and in the present day. We need to be able to have both of those conversations at the same time time. But making an example of a 98-year-old uh, war criminal is not the way forward. Yeah, I think that's well said. I, I should also add that in, I think, late 2020, the Ukrainian Supreme Court said that SS Galician uh, weren't involved in war crimes. They had no connection to the disgusting, abhorrent behavior of the Third Reich, um, which obviously is, is nonsensical. You've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.